many times did we hear John say, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. You know, he might have gotten bored by that, but we needed to hear it. I do the same thing with our church. I, I've said to our church uh, a hundred times, the Christian life is a walk. It's a walk. Right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot. The Christian life is not a pole vault. We don't hurdle into, you know, growth. It's not a long jump. It is a walk. And so if you want to be more intimate with God, I've said, Monday morning, get up and spend time with God. Monday night, go to sleep early. Tuesday night, Tuesday morning, get up and spend time with God. Tuesday night, go to bed on time. Wednesday morning, get up and spend time with God. Right foot, left foot, right foot, and you'll have an intimate walk with God. If you want to have a better marriage, Monday morning, get up and make coffee for your wife. And Monday night, be kind to her. And Tuesday morning, get up and make coffee for your wife. And Tuesday night, be kind to her. And Wednesday morning, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot. If you want to lose weight, eat less. <laughs> and do it repeatedly. <laughs> and so our leaders are people who repeat themselves. And vision is essential for giving. It's, you know, I have found, and I think this is true in, in the UK, but I have found in the United States, and certainly for me, the world could be coming to an end next Thursday. But if we've had good attendance and the giving is good, I'm a happy pastor. If you ask pastors, you know, how are things going and the church is growing, attendance is up, giving is good, things are going very well, thank you. Doesn't matter what else is happening, things are going very well, thank you very much. Vision is essential to motivate people to give. You know, we're asking people to give to the church. Why should we? Why should we? Because it's right to do? Because that's the, you know, the Christian thing? Or no, we're creating a future. God is working through us for a preferred future for our city, for this group of people. What's the picture you're painting? For a preferred future for single moms, or for kids, or for the poor, or, or for the next generation. People need to believe. Vision's crucial for unity. Vision is crucial for evaluating ministry. How do you know whether you're succeeding or not, unless you have a clear picture of what you wish to be? John Wimber used to say that uh, most churches play church the way men play fantasy basketball. I don't know if this translates quite, but, but you know, in the U.S., men play fantasy basketball. No ball, no hoop. But time is running out. Three, two, one. Rich shoots. Perfect. Through the basket, Rich wins. How do we know? There's no ball, no hoop. And uh, that's the way churches, you know, do church. 
How did your evangelistic meeting go? Oh, it was wonderful, just wonderful. No one got saved, but oh, we had a potluck after, and there was great pie, and, and, and we talked, and we had rich fellowship, and so we had a great evangelistic meeting. No ball, no hoop. No one got saved. The purpose of the, you know, the outreach was, I mean, there's no evaluative grid. So there's lots of reasons why we need vision. Now, if you read Christian books on leadership, you'll be told about the importance of vision. You'll be inspired to dare great things for God, to attempt great things for God, to believe great things for God. You'll be told story after story of people who overcame tremendous obstacles in order to achieve something. Uh, Billy Graham was told by one of his professors, there is certainly one thing you'll never be, and that is a preacher. Great discernment. Franklin Roosevelt, President Franklin Roosevelt overcame polio and Demosthenes, the Greek orator or overcame stuttering. Uh, you know, all of these great stories of overcoming obstacles. But here's what I want to say, and we're going to turn to our phones in just a second. Uh, with all of the great reasons why we must have a vision, uh, John Mumford stole my thunder last night when he said that before we have a vision for God, we must have a vision of God. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. We must have a vision of God. Vision begins with a vision of God. Visionary leadership doesn't start off with what could we accomplish? Or what could I accomplish? What could happen in our community? Visionary leadership starts off with a vision of God. The title that I, of my talk is The Vision of a Christian Leader, uh, The Vision of God. Let's just invite God's presence. Lord, I do pray that you'd fill me with the Spirit. And I do pray, God, that your word would have power and that we would see you more clearly. Lord, would you reveal yourself to us in a fresh way again? Help us to get in touch with the living God. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you'd lift our eyes, lift our chins up, Lord. For those who are downcast, lift us up. Help us to see you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, 
your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. Here am I, send me. So let me give you just a little bit of historical background to the text before we plunge into its parts. Uh, the, despite the fact that this chapter, chapter 6, comes after five chapters of prophecy, uh, this really, uh, chapter 6 in Isaiah really forms the beginning of the book. It just, uh, Isaiah could have reordered the chapters and put chapter 6 first. This is really the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. It's much like the book of Amos, where Amos puts a record of his calling way back in chapter 7. And so this is the beginning of uh, Isaiah's ministry. And if you know anything about Bible history, you know that the chronology of the kings is, is notoriously difficult to establish exactly who reigned when because there were co-regencies, kings serving at the same time, there are overlaps in the dating. But Isaiah's calling, this incident in Isaiah 6, probably took place around 740 B.C. in the year that King Uzziah died, he says. I saw the Lord, probably about 740 B.C. And Uzziah was a king of Israel longer than any king in all of Israel's history. He was king for 52 years. He came to the throne at one of the very low points in Israel's history. At the beginning of Uzziah's reign, Israel was a mess. It was a mess militarily. It was a mess economically. It's like going into a church following a senior pastor who's had an affair, run off with a secretary. Everyone is just reeling, and you're coming in. Everything is a mess. And the Lord prospered the nation under Uzziah's leadership. In fact, the borders of Israel extended further than they ever were since the days of Solomon and, and uh, King David. Now, I said that vision for a Christian leader doesn't begin with a vision for God. It rather begins with a vision of God. This is what we see in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Not, what can I do for the Lord? Not, my call to Christian service. Not, the agonized cries of the hungry or the lost. All of that is good. That's not where Isaiah started in his call. In the year King Uzziah died, what's the first thing, the most foundational thing? I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. It's a personal vision. I saw the Lord. For vision to mean anything, it must be a personal vision. You know, a Christian leader, to put it a little differently, is someone who has gone to the well themselves and drank. A Christian leader is not just someone who hands out secondhand opinions. You know, synthesize the very best of Tom Wright and Chris Wright and, you know, Wesley and Spurgeon and John Wimber and listen to lots of tapes. All of that is useful. 
But that's not at the foundation of real Christian leadership. All Christian leadership is a personal vision. I saw the Lord. It's a personal experience of God. The Apostle John tells us this in his book of 1 John. He says that uh, for young Christians and for older Christians, what lies at the foundation of the Christian life and any Christian success is a personal experience of God. 1 John 2.14, I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. A Christian leader speaks from their own personal experiential base. And it doesn't mean that we don't do a lot of reading, we don't listen to a lot of podcasts, we're not encouraged by other Christian leaders, but we need more than that. That's maybe necessary, but it's not sufficient. You need your own personal experience of God. Christian leader is not a parrot. A Christian leader is not an echo. They don't simply copy the opinions of other people. And if that is all you're currently able to do, you're not yet a Christian leader. You're certainly not yet a visionary leader. And you see the essential question that people really want to know, or they may not know this is their question, but it is the question, is what do you personally know of God? What do you personally know of God? Don't just talk to me about what church ought to be like, what should happen, what the correct answer is, but how deep do your convictions run? Have you sunk pilings all the way down to the triune God? All the way down. So that your convictions about sexuality or your convictions about suffering or your convictions about Christian leadership, or whatever the issue is, they run down to the being of God himself. Where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. Right? Or rather, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Who's your treasure? And you know, sometimes you talk with people and they have kind of a far-off quality as they're handing out counsel. You think, I don't think this person lives in the house that they want me to live in. I don't think they drink from the water that they're handing out for all of us to drink. I don't know that they satisfy their thirst with this water. Do you really satisfy your thirst with the water you hand out? Christian leadership begins and in large measure ends at this point. What's your vision of God? You know... Isn't that all we really have to offer to people? A vision of God? I mean, isn't that what makes the church different? Shocking as it may be, there are other organizations that can out-administrate the Christian church. I'm, I'm sorry to bring this brutal news from America. But... Uh, there are exceptionally bright people who do not believe in Jesus Christ. And uh, shocking as it may be, uh, there are other uh, places and people who can out-entertain the church. Given a Sunday morning program or Mumford & Sons, 
where are we going to have a line around the city? Uh, you know, Springsteen, Spielberg, they can out-entertain the church. So what unique thing do we offer as Christians? The reason why people are drawn is because they're looking for God. Really, that's the reason people are drawn. They're looking for God. What is God saying to us in this situation? I need a word from God. So let's look back at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, what is significant about when the vision came? It was in the year King Uzziah died. What occurred during the reign of Uzziah, the length of his reign, is this unparalleled period of Judean prosperity and peace. It was like England in the age of Victoria. And there was tremendous blessing on Judah during this time. And the military got stronger. And the Judean army was feared and tribute came into Judea from all over the ancient Near East. And then suddenly, like the assassination of John Kennedy, like the death of Victoria, it's all over. It's all over. And uh, it was a devastating blow. Often vision happens during a painful season. Uzziah was generally considered to be a good and righteous king. He had troubles at the end, but the overall reign of Uzziah was a good period. And uh, there was a huge hole left in national leadership. And there's a huge hole left in Isaiah's life. The king that he had relied on, that he admired, uh, is dead. And I just want to uh, just pause here and say this simple thing, and it may be obvious, but this is a part of the process that God uses to make and break a leader. He will sovereignly permit a hole to be formed in the leader's life. I've watched this over and over again in my own life. I've watched this in the life of people who are leaders. The process goes this way. Everything is going well. You're prospering. There's a time of peace. There's shalom. Everything is going fine. And then suddenly something happens unexpectedly that creates a hole, that creates a vacuum. Something upon which you trusted is gone. One of the props is pulled away. A mentor leaves. Uh, a group of leaders that you're relying on for your church goes out and plants a church. Somebody that you love has died. A spouse. A key leader in the church. They've moved on. Someone's ill. You find yourself leader leaderless. Uh, the picture of leadership that I often have, at least the creation of a whole, it's like, have you been to the circus and you see the acrobats on the trapeze? And so typically you swing out, let go of the trapeze. And before the other trapeze comes to you, there's that gap and you're hanging. That's the hole I'm talking about. And that's where God brings vision. It's in that time between letting go and grabbing on that gap. And uh, it could be somebody in your circle, a leader in your circle has fallen. 
someone you trusted, relied on, uh, befriended, uh, uh, shared with intimately. They've fallen, and they've had a moral failure. They've disqualified themselves. Uh, it could be that the community is suffering an economic crisis and finances are way down, or, uh, you know, like I said, it could be a good thing. A number of key leaders have left the church to plant a new church. But I see this over and over again, God permitting, God creating a hole in a leader's life, and what do you do to fill the hole? That's the question. And so, uh, you know, leaders experience a hole, and then what do we do? We search for ways to fill the hole, some, some counsel, and, and uh, church is not growing. Well, what should we do? There's a hole. And depending on how you answer the question, we either uh, answer the question by, by trying to fill the hole with, with some new strategies, with some, some secondhand counsel, with an imitation of what's working here or there, or you say, you know, before anything else, I really need to wait on the Lord. I must have a vision of God. Before anything else, I need to, for myself, find God. I've lost a spouse. I've lost a child. We've gone through a divorce. Uh, I've, I've experienced this hardship in my life. What do I need most of all? What I need most of all, I need God. Everything else is good, and I appreciate the comfort of others. And I love how the church has rallied around me. But in the core of my being, I must find God again. So Isaiah tells us the answer for the holes in life. He says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, if we were to look at the entire book of Isaiah, uh, we might summarize Isaiah's 66 chapters. That the burden of Isaiah the prophet was to restore a God-centered view of reality to the nation of Israel. That everything that Isaiah was about, everything he preached, was, I want to bring you back to God. Before I'm going to talk about anything else, I want to bring you back to God. To lift up a vision of God. All 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah can be summed up in a three-word phrase. Behold your God. Behold your God. Isaiah 40, verse 9. Behold your God. Or here is your God. That's the bottom line. You know, let's move away from an insipid, two-dimensional uh, vision of what God is like. I want to paint it in living color because if you get caught up with the true God, things are going to be different. And so Isaiah loses this great king. The nation is dealing with the problems of the loss. And the Lord comes not just with a new methodology. He not, just, he not only comes with a new technique. He not only comes with an answer. He brings himself. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now let's stop there. 
because Isaiah says, sees two things of God. Two things of God. First of all, he has a vision of God's sovereignty. He has a vision of God's sovereignty. Verse 2, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And, and what that speaks about in highly picturesque and symbolic language, it, it speaks to us about a vision of God's sovereignty. His robe and train speaks about God's majesty. He's a king. He wears a robe. That's his majesty. That's his kingship. That's, that's his reign. And uh, the Lord is saying, Isaiah, you lost your king, but you can never really lose your true king because I'm your king. You can never lose your true king. And you need to shift your allegiance and the weight of your reliance from the human king, and you need to put it where it's always meant to have been on me, the true king. And notice it says, his train filled the temple. The hem of his garment, the hem of his robe filled the temple. It would be like here, you know, fabric just extending to this whole room. God's sovereignty touches every atom in the universe. There's no particle in space where the hem of his robe doesn't spread. That's what Isaiah sees. I see the Lord reigning everywhere over every circumstance, over every particularity. There's nothing that catches God off, you know, uh, um, uh, just uh, without his prior knowledge. He's in control. He's king over all. And this inaugural vision of his reign, uh, these themes carry through in the book of Isaiah. So if you get to Isaiah 52, and uh, we want to hear what is Isaiah's gospel. Here's Isaiah's gospel in Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation. What is the good news? What does the message sound like? Who say to Zion, your God reigns. Oh, that's good news. Oh, that's good news. David Cameron doesn't reign. Your God reigns. You know, the queen doesn't reign. Your God reigns. Obama doesn't reign. Your God reigns. You know, the, the church, wherever it is, with all of its opinions, that doesn't reign. Your board doesn't reign. You know, your three-year-old doesn't really reign, even though she's a... Might believe she does. Your God reigns, and that's great news, especially when something hard happens in our, in our lives, right? When something really tragic happens. Well, what do we need to hear and believe deeply? What's the good news? The good news is that God is in control of this too. He reigns here also. I may not understand the whys and wherefores and unanswered prayers. I may not uh, get that until I see the Lord in glory. Uh, you know, but it's more than a senseless accident. And it's more than a sinful person. And it's more than just a quirk of genetics or, or some cancer that grew. It's more than that. 
You know, it's more than an attack and, and meanness and misrepresentation. All of that has to be factored in. But I need to believe that God is at work in all of this. That God is in control. That God is sovereign here. And that God will use this for my good and for his glory. And I need to believe that pain and suffering never have the last word. Because of the resurrection, because of the resurrection, the last word is never suffering. And it's never sin, and it's never death. Because of the resurrection, the last word is always triumph. It's always victory. And if you were African American, you'd be out of your seats yelling, Amen, Amen. And if you're English, you go, hmm. <laughs> Resurrection, hmm. You're jumping up and down on the inside, I know that. <laughs> Years ago, I read a biography of Jonathan Edwards, who uh, was uh, used greatly of the Lord to bring a great awakening to the United States, much like Wesley and Whitfield here in the UK. And uh, he pastored a church up in New England, uh, in Connecticut, and then... They kicked him out. Here's the church that he founded after 25 years. His church kicked him out. And he was like an amazing pastor. They said, we don't want you anymore. They kicked him out. And so what did he do? He didn't just sort of cry and roll up in a ball. He said, all right. And he went to minister to the American Indians out in the wilderness. And because he was such a brilliant theologian, he was called back from the wilderness to be the president of a new college in New Jersey that is called Princeton. And uh, he went down there to become the university president, and there was a new uh, vaccine out that they were just trying out to uh, inoculate against smallpox. And uh, Edwards volunteered. He said, sure, sure, if this will, you know, heal or protect against smallpox, I'll try it out. Well. He got smallpox from the vaccine, and he died within a week. And his wife got the news that her beloved Jonathan died. And they had, he was one of these people that was a brilliant theologian and had the best marriage in the world. I mean, he combined the best of all worlds. He's a real hero of mine. Uh, he loved the move of the Spirit. He loved great thinking. And he was just an amazing husband. And, and so Sarah Edwards, his wife, wrote a letter to her daughter. And here's what she said. She said, my very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had Jonathan so long. But my God lives, and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am, and there I love to be. Your affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. She says it all. Let us kiss the rod, the scepter of the Lord's reign. Let us acknowledge our God reigns. Let us bow before God that we had my husband 
and your father for so long, but God has my heart. Could you imagine pastoring a church filled with Sarah Edwards? That as people experience pain and difficulty, they, they say, you know, the loss of, of husbands and wives and parents and children and jobs and disappointments and, you know, just heartache and operations. How did we produce Sarah Edwards in our churches? You know, where do such people come from? Is it possible that we could ever get a Sarah Edwards from the kind of preaching that we offer? That you could ever get people to really think like that? Unless we lift up a vision of God week after week in the church because that's what people need. They need it more than they need therapy. They, they, they need it more than they need our groups. They, they need it more than they need us meeting their felt needs. Their real need is God. Their real need is God. So Isaiah has a vision of God's sovereignty and he has a vision of God's holiness. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And he goes on to describe what he sees of God. And here's what it says in verses 1 to 3. I saw the Lord high and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. With two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now the passage uh, speaks about the angels. Uh, there were angels flying above the Lord's head. And it says they were seraphs. Seraphs. It's the only time seraphs are mentioned in the scripture. It seems to be related to a Hebrew word meaning fire. There were these glowing beings flying above the Lord that looked like they were full of fire. And uh, he saw this bright light just flashing over God. And then below the throne, he saw the cherubim. The cherubim. Now, uh, they're not these chubby little babies. We say that, right? Oh, how cherubic, right? Oh, get your little, squeeze the. No, no, if you saw a cherubim, you'd be falling on your face. Uh, it, it, it appears that the, the word cherubim is related to an old Akkadian word, ancient Near Eastern language, meaning intercessor. Uh, they might have played a role in intercession or in offering protection for the people of God. There are something like 350 different passages in the Bible that refer to angels, and, and the seraphim and the cherubim appear to be part of some kind of angelic hierarchy, but what does Isaiah see? He sees the angels and they're covering their faces and they're covering their feet because of the holiness of God that, that even the angels are, are hiding in humility and modesty as they come into the presence of holy God. Even the angels can't look full on. A Christian leader is somebody who has a vision of God's holiness. And uh, the angels are crying out to one another in this antiphonal way, sort of like, do you, do you have the song, Row, Row, Row Your Boat Here? Do they, yeah? All right. Uh, so it's like that. They're going, holy, 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 and they're yelling back and forth 
in the temple. And these angels, the pillars are shaking as they yell back and forth. Holiness. A Christian leader's ministry begins with a vision of God's holiness. You know, the toughest, you can write this down, this is important. The toughest decisions we will ever face in ministry concern upholding God's righteousness and holiness. These are the hardest decisions. It is not hard to uphold God's love. To be a kind person, to come alongside people, to comfort, to support. Everyone will love you. Everyone will cheer for you. Everyone will pat you on the back and say, thank you so much. You were there for me. It is not difficult for us as Christians to uphold the love of God. The times when I have felt utterly alone in leadership are those times in ministry where I felt compelled to uphold God's holiness, God's righteousness. When I've offered what the Bible calls a life-giving feel the need to exercise church discipline 